Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As I mentioned last week, today is your last day to submit a story. As of midnight tonight, we'll be closed to works longer than 2,000 words. If you're listening to this episode on release day, happy Friday the 13th. Now, I have to admit, I've always been a big fan of Friday the 13th, and not because of the movies either. No offense, Jason. Maybe it's just that part of me that loves the old world superstition. Or it could be that a Friday the 13th was the only time I won any meaningful amount of money from the lottery, even if it was just a couple hundred bucks. But I think it's more about the concept than anything. Not everyone looks favorably on the date, though. Triskaidekaphobia, fear of the number 13, and its cousin, Periskevidekatriophobia, fear of Friday the 13th specifically, are apparently real things. And while I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who experience that firsthand, few people have had the same level of aversion to Friday the 13th as Bob Renfrey, a former bus driver from North Wales. Of course, given the history he had with the date, I suppose it was no wonder. The list of bad luck that had found him on Friday the 13th is almost comically long. Throughout the years, just some of the misfortune that had followed him includes losing his job, walking through a plate glass window, falling into a river, crashing a motorcycle, riding off four cars, and, maybe most dangerous to his health of all, 
putting his wife in the hospital after throwing a stick for his dog and hitting her in the face. No wonder he would get cautious every time Friday the 13th began creeping up in the calendar. Bob's solution to the chaos? Stay in bed. After all, a day that never starts can't hurt you, right? In fact, even when a local TV channel wanted him to come down to the station for an interview about his experiences, they had to load him into an ambulance and wheel him and his bed into the studio. But while Bob thought he had finally bested the infernal day, Friday the 13th had one last trick up its sleeve. When he died in 1998, his wife decided to have him buried on the upcoming Friday the 13th as a tribute to his relationship with the superstitious occasion. But try as she could, no matter who she called, not a single funeral home or undertaker she contacted was available, something Bob, no doubt, would have found the humor in. But while Bob managed to find a way to mostly escape the wrath of superstition by staying in bed, New York resident Daz Baxter wasn't so lucky. Baxter had a similar fear of Friday the 13th. He, like Bob, decided to stay in bed. Was there any safer place, really? But as he lay hiding under the covers, he heard a rumble and a groan, followed by a horrendous crash. The floor beneath his bed had suddenly given way, and poor Daz Baxter plunged six stories down to his death. Talk about bad luck. On the opposite end of the spectrum from Daz and Bob is a man named Captain William Fowler. Since he was young, the number 13 seemed to show up an abnormal amount of times in Fowler's life. Or at least, he was convinced that was the case. He was the 13th member of the ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the Mystic Shrine, one of the 13 secret societies he belonged to. Busy guy. He graduated from public school number, you guessed it, 13, in Manhattan, fought in 13 Civil War battles, resigned his military commission on August 13th, he bought a pub on September 13th, and eventually sold it years later on April 13th. But where so many 13s might have some men claiming coincidence, and others holed up in bed with the covers pulled over their heads, Captain Fowler was a different kind of man, the kind of man who'd be more likely to give bad luck the finger than the time of day. And in all fairness, despite the repetition of 13 in his life, he'd lived a pretty good one. No matter when or where 13 cropped up, it never seemed to bring with it any kind of bad luck at all. So, what does a dapper man about town in the late 1800s do to spit in the eye of superstition and misfortune? He starts a supper club, of course. On Friday, January 13th, at 8.13pm, in room 13, Captain Fowler and 12 other men gathered for dinner. There was no mistaking the theme of the party either. To enter, guests had to walk under a ladder, and beneath a banner that read, Morituri te salutamus. If your Latin's rusty, that means, those of us who are about to die salute you. Cheerful. Once guests were sat at the table, lit, of course, 
by 13 candles and strewn with spilled salt shakers. They were treated to a 13-course meal that included platters of lobster salad molded into the shape of coffins. But despite tempting fate in almost every way possible, there was no fire or brimstone. No tragedy befell the guests, and even run-of-the-mill bad luck seemed in short supply. In fact, on the first anniversary of what became known as the Thirteen Club, the scribe for the group proudly proclaimed, Out of the entire role of membership, whether they have participated or not at the banquet table, not a single member is dead, or has even had a serious illness. On the contrary, so far as can be learned, the members during the past twelve months have been exceptionally healthy and fortunate. The Thirteen Club met regularly for several decades afterward, changing in membership, but never in purpose. It would go on to host some surprisingly notable members, including four former U.S. presidents. I've got to hand it to Captain Fowler. Not the most subtle guy, but he clearly knows how to throw one hell of a party. Our first story for the evening comes from our old friend, H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was an American author of horror and weird fiction, best known for creating what became the Cthulhu mythos. As a young man, he never finished school, instead staying home due to fragile health but he devoured books that were well advanced for his age. Writing his first story at the age of six, he took up writing as his profession at the age of 24. Too shy to promote himself, he struggled to make a living with his work, publishing mostly in pulp magazines. He lived in poverty, barely scraping by on income from ghostwriting until his death in 1937 at the age of just 46. After his death, two of his friends collected his stories and arranged for their publication. Without them, Lovecraft's work would likely never have gained the following and notoriety it has today in the world of horror literature. Children of the Night Join me for H.P. Lovecraft's The Beast in the Cave First published in The Vagrant, June 1918 The horrible conclusion, which had been gradually intruding itself upon my confused and reluctant mind, was now an awful certainty. I was lost, completely, hopelessly lost, in the vast and labyrinthian recess of the Mammoth Cave. Turn as I might, in no direction could my straining vision seize on any object capable of serving as a guidepost to set me on the outward path that nevermore should I behold the blessed light of day, or scan the pleasant hills and dales of the beautiful world outside, my reason could no longer entertain the slightest unbelief. Hope had departed. Yet, 
Indoctrinated as I was by a life of philosophical study, I derived no small measure of satisfaction from my unimpassioned demeanor. For although I had frequently read of the wild frenzies into which were thrown the victims of similar situations, I experienced none of these, but stood quiet as soon as I clearly realized the loss of my bearings. Nor did the thought that I had probably wandered beyond the utmost limits of an ordinary search cause me to abandon my composure, even for a moment. If I must die, I reflected, then was this terrible yet majestic cavern as welcome a sepulchre as that which any churchyard might afford, a conception which carried with it more of tranquility than of despair. Starving would prove my ultimate fate. Of this I was certain. Some, I knew, had gone mad under circumstances such as these, but I felt that this end would not be mine. My disaster was the result of no fault save my own, since unknown to the guide, I had separated myself from the regular party of sightseers, and, wandering for over an hour in forbidden avenues of the cave, had found myself unable to retrace the devious windings which I had pursued since forsaking my companions. Already my torch had begun to expire. Soon I would be enveloped by the total and almost palpable blackness of the bowels of the earth. As I stood in the waning, unsteady light, I idly wondered over the exact circumstances of my coming end. I remembered the accounts which I had heard of the colony of consumptives, who, taking their residence in this gigantic grotto to find health from the apparently salubrious air of the underground world, with its steady, uniform temperature, pure air, and peaceful quiet, had found instead death in strange and ghastly form. I had seen the sad remains of their ill-made cottages as I passed them by with the party, and had wondered what unnatural influence a long sojourn in this immense and silent cave would exert upon one as healthy and vigorous as I. Now, I grimly told myself, my opportunity for settling this point had arrived provided that want of food should not bring me too speedy a departure from this life. As the last fitful rays of my torch faded into obscurity, I resolved to leave no stone unturned, no possible means of escape neglected. So, summoning all of the powers possessed by my lungs, I set up a series of loud shoutings, in the vain hope of attracting the attention of the guide by my clamor. Yet, as I called, I believed in my heart that my cries were to no purpose, and that my voice magnified and reflected by the numberless ramparts of the black maze about me fell upon no years, save my own. All at once, however, my attention was fixed with a start as I fancied that I heard the sound of soft approaching steps on the rocky floor of the cavern. Was my deliverance about to be accomplished so soon? Had then all my horrible apprehensions been for naught? and was the guide, having marked my unwarranted absence from the party, following my course and seeking me out in this limestone labyrinth? Whilst these joyful queries arose in my brain, I was on the point of renewing my cries in order that my discovery might come the sooner, when, in an instant, my delight was turned to horror as I listened. For my ever-acute ear, now sharpened in even greater degree by the complete silence of the cave, bore to my benumbed understanding that the unexpected and dreadful knowledge that these footfalls were not like those of any mortal man. 
in the unearthly stillness of this subterranean region, the tread of the booted guide would have sounded like a series of sharp and incisive blows. These impacts were soft and stealthy, as of the paws of some feline. Besides, when I listened carefully, I seemed to trace the falls of four instead of two feet. I was now convinced that I had, by my own cries, aroused and attracted some wild beast, perhaps a mountain lion which had accidentally strayed within the cave. Perhaps, I considered, the Almighty had chosen me for a swifter and more merciful death than that of hunger. Yet the instinct of self-preservation, never wholly dormant, was stirred in my breast, and though escape from the oncoming peril might but spare me for a sterner and more lingering end, I determined nevertheless to part with my life as high a price as I could command. Strange as it might seem, my mind conceived of no intent on the part of the visitor save that of hostility. Accordingly, I became very quiet, in the hope that the unknown beast would, in the absence of a guiding sound, lose its direction, as had I, and thus pass me by. But this hope was not destined for realization, for the strange footfall steadily advanced. The animal, evidently having obtained my scent, which, in an atmosphere so absolutely free from all distracting influences as is that of the cave, could doubtless be followed at great distance. Seeing, therefore, that I must be armed for defense against an uncanny and unseen attack in the dark, I groped about me the largest of the fragments of rock which were strewn upon all parts of the floor of the cavern in the vicinity, and grasping one in each hand for immediate use, awaited with resignation the inevitable result. Meanwhile, the hideous pattering of the paws drew near. Certainly, the conduct of the creature was exceedingly strange. Most of the time, the tread seemed to be that of a quadruped, walking with a singular lack of unison betwixt hind and four feet. Yet at brief and infrequent intervals, I fancied that, but two feet were engaged in the process of locomotion. I wondered what species of animal was to confront me, it must, I thought, be some unfortunate beast who had paid for its curiosity to investigate one of the entrances of the fearful grotto with a life confinement in its interminable recesses. It doubtless obtained as food the eyeless fish, bats, and rats of the cave as well as some of the ordinary fish that are wafted in in every fish net of Green River, which communicates in some occult manner with the waters of the cave. I occupied my terrible vigil with grotesque conjectures of what alteration cave life must have wrought in the physical structure of the beast, remembering the awful appearances ascribed by local tradition to the consumptives who had died after long residence in the cave. Then I remembered with a start that, even should I succeed in felling my antagonist, I should never behold its form, as my torch had long since been extinct, and I was entirely unprovided with matches. The tension of my brain now became frightful. My disordered fancy conjured up hideous and fearsome shapes from the sinister darkness that surrounded me, and that actually seemed to press upon my body. Nearer, nearer, the dreadful footfalls approached. It seemed that I must give vent to a piercing scream, yet had I been sufficiently irresolute to attempt such a thing, my voice could scarce have responded. I was petrified rooted to the spot. I doubted if my right arm would allow me to hurl its missile at the oncoming thing when the crucial moment should arrive. Now the steady pat-pat of the steps was close at hand. Now very close. I could hear the labored breathing of the animal, and terror-struck as I was, 
I realized that it must have come from a considerable distance and was correspondingly fatigued. Suddenly the spell broke. My right hand, guided by my ever-trustworthy sense of hearing, threw with full force the sharp-angled bit of limestone which it contained. Toward that point in the darkness from which emanated the breathing and pattering, and, wonderful to relate, it nearly reached its goal, for I heard the thing jump, landing at a distance away, where it seemed to pause. Having readjusted my aim, I discharged my second missile, this time most effectively, for with a flood of joy I listened as the creature fell in what sounded like a complete collapse and evidently remained prone and unmoving. Almost overpowered by the great relief which rushed over me, I reeled back against the wall. The breathing continued, in heavy, gasping inhalations and expirations, whence I realized that I had no more than wounded the creature, and now all desire to examine the thing ceased. At last something allied to groundless, superstitious fear had entered my brain, and I did not approach the body, nor did I continue to cast stones at it in order to complete the extinction of its life. Instead, I ran at full speed in what was, as nearly as I could estimate in my frenzied condition, the direction from which I had come. Suddenly, I heard a sound, or rather, a regular succession of sounds. In another instant, they had resolved themselves into a series of sharp, metallic clicks. This time, there was no doubt. It was the guide. And then I shouted, yelled, screamed, even shrieked with joy as I beheld in the vaulted arches above the faint and glimmering effulgence which I knew to be the reflected light of an approaching torch. I ran to meet the flare, and before I could completely understand what had occurred, was lying upon the ground at the feet of the guide, embracing his boots and gibbering, despite my boasted reserve, in a most meaningless and idiotic manner, pouring out my terrible story and at the same time overwhelming my auditor with protestations of gratitude. At length I awoke to something like my normal consciousness. The guide had noted my absence upon the arrival of the party at the entrance of the cave, and had from his own intuitive sense of direction proceeded to make a thorough canvas of by-passages just ahead of where he had last spoken to me, locating my whereabouts after a quest of about four hours. By the time he had related this to me, I, emboldened by his torch and his company, began to reflect upon the strange beast which I had wounded but a short distance back in the darkness, and suggested that we ascertain, by the flashlight's aid, what matter of creature was my victim. Accordingly, I retraced my steps, this time with a courage born of championship, to the scene of my terrible experience. Soon we descried a white object upon the floor an object whiter even than the gleaming limestone itself. Cautiously advancing, we gave vent to a simultaneous ejaculation of wonderment, for of all the unnatural monsters either of us had in our lifetimes beheld, this was in surpassing degree the strangest. It appeared to be an anthropoid ape of large proportions, escaped, perhaps, from some itinerant menagerie. Its hair was snow-white, a thing due, no doubt, to the bleaching action of a long existence within the inky confines of the cave. But it was also surprisingly thin, being indeed largely absent save on the head, where it was of such length and abundance that it fell over the shoulders in considerable profusion. 
The face was turned away from us as the creature lay almost directly upon it. The inclination of the limbs was very singular, explaining, however, the alternation in their use which I had before noted, whereby the beast used sometimes all four, and on other occasions but two for its progress. From the tips of the fingers or toes, long rat-like claws extended. The hands or feet were not prehensile, a fact that I ascribed to that long residence in the cave which, as I before mentioned, seemed evident from the all-pervading and almost unearthly whiteness so characteristic of the whole anatomy. No tails seemed to be present. The respiration had now grown very feeble, and the guide had drawn his pistol with the evident intent of dispatching the creature, when a sudden sound emitted by the latter caused the weapon to fall unused. The sound was of a nature difficult to describe. It was not like a normal note of any known species of simian, and I wonder if this unnatural quality were not the result of a long, continued, and complete silence, broken by the sensations produced by the advent of the light, a thing which the beast could not have seen since its first entrance into the cave. The sound, which I might feebly attempt to classify as a kind of deep-toned chattering, was faintly continued. All at once, a fleeting spasm of energy seemed to pass through the frame of the beast. The paws went through a convulsive motion, and the limbs contracted. With a jerk, the white body rolled over so that its face turned in our direction. For a moment, I was so struck with horror at the eyes thus revealed that I noted nothing else. They were black, those eyes deep, jetty black, in hideous contrast to the snow-white hair and flesh. Like those of other cave denizens, they were deeply sunk in their orbits and were entirely destitute of iris. As I looked more closely, I saw that they were set in a face less prognathous than that of an average ape, and infinitely less hairy. The nose was quite distinct. As we gazed upon the uncanny sight presented to our vision, the thick lips opened and several sounds issued from them, after which the thing relaxed in death. The guide clutched my coat sleeve and trembled so violently that the light shook fitfully, casting weird moving shadows on the walls. I made no motion, but stood rigidly still, my horrified eyes fixed upon the floor ahead. The fear left, and wonder, awe, compassion, and reverence succeeded in its place. For the sounds uttered by the stricken figure that lay stretched out on the limestone had told us the awesome truth. The creature I had killed, the strange beast of the unfathomed cave, was, or had at one time, been a man. That was H.P. Lovecraft's The Beast in the Cave, as read by Chris Johnston. Chris Johnston has been narrating horror stories for over two years, and has collaborated with YouTubers such as Llama Arts and Horror Shorts Party. Some of his favorite pastimes include struggling to breathe in the gym after a long and much-needed workout, spending time with close friends and family discussing which of Mel Brooks's films were his most quotable, 
and listening to bands such as Cattle Decapitation and We Are William to decompress after a long day of serving his corporate overlords. You can find his YouTube channel at Bound in Imagery if you're interested in listening to more terrifying tales. Thank you, Chris. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second story for the evening comes from Gwyn Garfinkel. Gwyn Garfinkel lives in Los Angeles. Her work has appeared in such publications as Strange Horizons, Uncanny, Apex, Lackingtons, Through the Gate, Dreams and Nightmares, and Not One of Us. Her collection of short fiction and poetry, People Change, was published in 2018 by Aqueduct Press. Children of the Night, join me for Gwyn Garfinkel's Man Size, first published in The Sockdollager. Summer 2017 Things Amy and I wanted to do before she started going out with Ted. Start a band. Write a comic book or maybe a webcomic. Amy's art, my words. Get an apartment together. When we go to college. 
Go to Ireland. Go to Paris. Go to Prague. Ted says Prague is overrated. He's vague about whether he's actually been there. He says Amy should want to visit Asia, not Europe, because her mother's Japanese. Born in Los Angeles like us. He says she shouldn't bother to start a band because it's next to impossible to succeed in music anymore. What with musicians making nearly no money from interest streaming, etc. As if we didn't already know that. It wasn't about making money, it was about playing music together. As for getting an apartment, Ted says that of course it's he and Amy who are going to do that. And Amy smiles like her heart is melting into her shoes. But a day or a week later, she's not smiling. At first, Ted seemed nice. I was happy for Amy. But now it's all drama, drama, drama. One day she's crying and can't eat. She sits in the cafeteria nibbling a bit of torn-off crust from her sandwich and looking greenish. The food keeps rolling up my throat, she whispers. Then a day or two later, she and Ted are all lovey-dovey again, like nothing ever happened. Like he never shouted at her and called her crazy. They act like he doesn't break up with her every couple of weeks. The other day, Amy passed out in English class, and after I walked her to the nurse's office, the thought popped into my head that Ted was a vampire, and Amy fainted from blood loss. It seemed ridiculous, but the idea latched on and wouldn't let go. There was truth in it even if it wasn't literally true. My mom was a huge Buffy fan for years. She even used to write fanfic, so I sort of grew up with vampires on the brain. Yes, Ted goes to our school, and he's around in the daylight. And no, he doesn't sparkle. Amy hasn't met his parents yet. Ted hasn't even let her come into his house. He told her his parents are crazy, especially his mother. But for all I know, he could be lying about everything. Amy said she passed out because she hadn't eaten. Because she and Ted were fighting and it put her stomach in knots. That makes more sense than vampire Ted sucking Amy's blood. But the thing is, when Amy looks sick and gray-faced, which she always does when they're fighting, Ted looks amazing. He struts down the hall like he owns the place. Girls stare after him. And uh, not a few guys. He looks more muscular somehow, or maybe taller. He looks like a rock star. Then, when Amy's feeling better, Ted seems to fade, to become diminished, ordinary. I have to struggle to picture him. He's so unmemorable. A white guy, not pale, not deeply tanned, with dirty blonde hair, I think. Jill, when you find a girl and fall in love, you'll understand, Amy says, whenever I tell her Ted is bad for her, 
Once, she even said, You're just jealous that I have someone and you don't. I don't appreciate her throwing it in my face that I've never had a girlfriend. I've never even kissed a girl. I've kissed guys, which is one of the reasons I know I like girls. What I've had is wild crushes. A crush on Miss Gomez, the school librarian. A crush on Judy Ryan when she was a senior and I was in the 11th grade. Judy Ryan, with her ever-changing hair, red or blue or purple or green, she was bisexual and didn't care who knew. And she was a really talented artist. One time, she drew a sketch of me, just tossed it off in a minute, and I treasured it until the piece of paper practically fell apart. I don't have a wild crush on anybody right now. I sort of wish I did. Apparently, since I'm not a relationship expert, that disqualifies me from noticing that Ted is a horrible boyfriend. And sure, I want someone to kiss me and put her arm around me and have sex with me. Someone to love me. But I don't want a girl version of Ted. It happens again. Amy's tear-soaked voice on the phone Sunday morning. He broke up with me. Oh, God, oh, God, Jill, I want to die. Just let him go, I'd say, trying not to sound exasperated. You don't understand. Life doesn't mean anything without him. Amy used to write songs and play the piano. She used to draw cartoons. She used to care about going to college. We've applied, but I'm not sure she even wants to go anymore. Ted is vague about whether he's planning to go, and if so, where. When Ted came along, Amy's life shrank to a tiny point. To her, it feels like the world. But really, it's the exact opposite. Two days later, they're back together. How can you stand the drama? I ask. It's like Wuthering Heights, she says. It's romantic. Heathcliff killed a puppy, I say. Amy's favorite singers are Adele, Amy Winehouse, my namesake, she used to say, and Patsy Cline. When she and Ted are in a breakup, she listens to crazy over and over again. Ted thinks it's funny and or stupid that Amy likes Patsy Cline. Ted gets away with saying things Amy never would have tolerated before. He calls her beautiful and exotic. And even though she always said she hated being called exotic, I guess when Ted says it, beautiful outweighs exotic. Ted loves Amy's long hair. He's always stroking it possessively in public, which seems a bit much. Amy says he told her, Don't you dare cut your hair. If you cut your hair like Jill, I'll break up with you. That goes double for dyeing it. My favorite singer is PJ Harvey. I got into her music when I found out Judy Ryan liked her. My favorite song of hers is Man Size. It's loud and swaggery. 
P.J. Harvey stealing all the matcha thunder for herself. She's got a girl and leather boots. She takes up so much space. You don't like me, do you, Jill? Ted asks one day at the lockers when Amy isn't around. I'm so surprised the laugh escapes me. He smirks, and I want to smack him. Why don't you like me? I think I'm going to say, because you're hurting my best friend. What I actually say is, because you're a vampire. I hold my breath. His eyebrows go up. Is that what you think? He doesn't deny it. I hold my breath. The sounds of the noisy hall, slamming lockers, gabbing kids, recedes for a moment. Then he looks directly into my eyes and says, I know the real reason you don't like me. His voice hints at terrible secrets I must be hiding even from myself. Unease, disease, fills me. Then he strides off down the hall. He looks massive as a football player. My head buzzes like he just drank my blood. Sitting on the bed in Amy's room Friday after school. There used to be a big poster of Prague on the wall. It's gone now, the wall bare. A bit of flowered wallpaper ripped off with the scotch tape. Amy keeps looking down at her phone, waiting for a text. A precious word from Ted. Ted thinks the reason you don't like him is because you're jealous, she says, eyes latched onto her phone. Because you have someone and I don't, I ask. She presses her lips together. She still won't look at me. No, jealous of him, because you want me all to yourself. At first, I think she means as best friends. And then I get it. This is what Ted meant by the real reason. No offense, Amy, but you know I don't think of you that way. You're like my sister. Finally, she looks up at me. Tears wobble in her eyes. That's what I told him, but he says he picks up on something when you're around. She seems to be having trouble getting the words out. He said, You're hiding your tr feelings because if I knew, I'd be weirded out and wouldn't want to be your friend anymore. She wipes away a tear. Amy, come on! How can you buy this crap? I remember how Amy held me when Judy Ryan graduated and I knew I would probably never see her again. And I cried and cried, and I told Amy how I felt about Judy. And she was so cool and accepting about the whole thing. Where has my friend gone? Amy looks miserable, but determined. Ted says you and I should take some time apart. Until you can get used to the idea of me being with him.
All at once I go cold inside. Cold, angry, self-protective angry. And you're going to go along with that? I ask quietly. She wipes her eyes and looks down at her phone. When she meets my gaze again, she looks resolute. I love him, Jill, and you don't want me to be with him. If I have to choose... She can't say the words. She doesn't have to. I guess you have to do what you have to do. I get up, straighten my spine, and walk out of Amy's room, the room where I've spent countless hours. I only let myself start to cry when I'm out the front door. It's a beautiful spring afternoon, blue sky and vibrant purple ice plants adding insult to injury. I walk the few blocks to my house. I wonder if I'll ever go back. I hide in my room most of the weekend and play silence over and over on my tablet. It's the saddest song I know. P.J. Harvey's voice is plaintive, soaked in loss. My mom knocks on my door Saturday afternoon. When she comes in, I try to hide the fact that I've been crying I don't want to talk about it, but eventually I do. Amy doesn't want to be my friend anymore because of her boyfriend. I start to cry again. My mom sits on my bed and puts her arm around me. At first I wish she wouldn't because it just makes me cry harder, but then I let myself cry. I remember when I was a teenager and my best friend had a boyfriend and I didn't. My mom says, that was really hard. I mean, I know you don't want a boyfriend, but that's not what this is about. I know she's trying to be cool and understanding, but the last thing I ever want to do is talk to my mother about my love life or lack thereof. I take off my tear-spattered glasses and clean them with the hem of my t-shirt. Ted is a horrible, horrible person. He's really bad for her. All he does is try to cut her down. Why can't she see it? My mom takes this in. Jill, does Ted hit Amy? No. I can't tell her how Ted is draining Amy's life away. I don't even understand it myself, but what he does is just as bad. I'm afraid you're going to have to let Amy make her own mistakes. Let her live her own life and focus on yours. But he's killing her, Mom. I'm not sure if I meant that literally or not. For the first time in ages... I walk to school by myself on Monday morning. Amy and I sit across the room from each other in English class. I notice the other kids noticing, or maybe I'm just so self-conscious about it, I assume everybody's watching. I huddle in my seat while Mr. Silva talks about Heart of Darkness. <sighs> I wish I could disappear. Later, I pass Ted talking to some guys outside the cafeteria. 
He sees me and smiles, triumphant. As he takes in my misery, he grows more and more glorious. He takes up so much space. The very atoms seem to part for him. I blink. I'm not imagining it. The other guys flock around him with his sudden charisma. I feel sick. I go into the bathroom and see myself in the mirror. I don't look good. My eyes are red from crying, but that's the least of it. My freckles stand out brightly against my sudden pallor, as do the couple of zits that appeared overnight. My orange hair is overwhelming my skin. I look like I have the flu. I look like I need a blood transfusion, whatever that looks like. All at once, I realize Ted is feeding on me, too. Then I throw up in the sink. Fortunately, I haven't eaten anything since last night, so I just dry heave. I'm still gagging when a couple of girls come into the bathroom. Oh, gross! Sherry Lind mutters and shuts herself into a stall. I'm embarrassed, but I feel too sick to care much. Sherry pees, I wipe my mouth with the back of my hand and straighten up, and my chalky face confronts me in the mirror. I break out in a cold sweat and hold on to the edge of the sink. Hey, are you okay? Rosie Castillo asks. You don't look so good. I don't feel so good, I agree. The toilet flushes and Sherry comes out and washes her hands. She sends me a disdainful look, and I notice, despite my lightheadedness, how pretty she is, tall and slender, with reddish-gold hair, large eyes, and a wide mouth. Hey, Sherry, Rosie says. I really have to pee, but maybe you should walk Jill to the nurse's office. She doesn't look so good. Sherry eyes me. You're not just hungover or something? She asks. I shake my head. Her expression softens. Sorry, it's just, you always look like a tough rocker check. I assumed you were hungover or something. Even though I felt like crap, I'm amazed and more than a little flattered that she ever noticed me enough to form an opinion. Much less that one. Not the hungover part. I don't drink. But the tough rocker chick part? That I like. Sherry smiles slightly. Okay, let's go. Just don't puke on me, okay? I won't, I say, trying not to breathe in her direction with my dry heave breath. I wish I felt better so I could enjoy being escorted to the nurse's office by a pretty girl. I hope you feel better, Sherry says when we get there. Thanks, I say, and she walks off. The nurse takes my temperature, which is normal, and has me lie on a cot. I'm so exhausted, I fall asleep for a while. The nurse lets me lie there until it's time to go home. I stay home the next day, still feel wiped out and queasy. Even though my temperature's normal, my mom thinks I might have a virus or something, and works at home so she can keep an eye on me. 
I stay in bed and watch live PJ Harvey videos on YouTube and eat dry toast. Later, I sit at the kitchen table and eat the chicken noodle soup my mom has heated up. I feel better, but more and more weirded out. I'm not sure if Ted really did this to me. And if he did, I have no idea how to keep him from doing it again. I'm afraid to go back to school the next day. I'm tempted to tell my mom I'm still sick, but I don't. I hope I can avoid Ted, but the second I get there, I see him and Amy at the lockers. His arm is draped around her shoulders. She looks happy in a fragile, tremulous way. She seems very small beneath his arm. She sees me and flinches, averts her gaze. Is she ashamed of dumping me? She ought to be. I wasn't imagining. It's freakish how Ted burgeons and puffs up as he drinks in our pain. Now that I know what's happening, it's amazing no one else can see. Amy looks tiny in his swollen shadow. How can she not see this? A wave of dizziness goes through me, and it occurs to me that maybe she's too busy trying not to pass out. No, I think. He doesn't get to do this to me again. I stare into my locker and take a deep breath to steady myself. Man size pops into my head, and I hold on to it with all my might. I slam my locker shut and swagger down the hall in time to the tune in my head. Then I glance back. Ted has shrunk back to his average forgettable self. He looks puzzled. I smile grimly. In English class, Amy turns and looks at me a couple of times as if she's not sure she knows me. The feeling is mutual. That night, after I finish my homework, I listen to man size over and over in my room. I play along on my acoustic guitar, though I really need an electric one. I'm not a very good guitarist, but I'm working on it. I try to make the song my own, make it a part of me. I think of what Sherry said, that I look like a tough rocker chick. If only I can feel that way, instead of lonely and hurt and afraid. As I listen to the song and play along, I grow stronger, angrier. Can the song make me impervious to Ted? I listen to the whole Rid of Me album for good measure. The next day, I march into school ready for battle, but I don't see Ted. During English, Amy sits at the front of the class, eye and back. Can't see her face, just her long dark hair bent over a page of her Heart of Darkness paper bag. By lunchtime, my fighting spirit has started to flag. I sit in an empty classroom with my bag lunch, put in my earbuds and listen to P.J. Harvey. My appetite is back to normal. I finish my turkey sandwich, and as I'm stomping my foot to meet the monster, close my eyes for what must only be an instant. When I open them, Ted is looming over me. I give a jump. 
He's saying something I can't hear over P.J. Harvey. It's great not being able to hear him. He reaches out and yanks out my earbuds. I want to talk to you, he says. Well, I don't want to talk to you. I get to my feet and collect my things, but Ted's standing between me and the door. Some best friend you turned out to be, he says. You aren't even trying to work things out with Amy. I stare at him. Surely that was what he wanted? Then I realize he wants both of us. All our misery. A delicious misery buffet. You won, Ted. She's all yours. I hope you'll be very happy together. Ted scowls. What do you expect? For her to choose you over me? She's not a dyke. She's beautiful and talented, unlike you. She knows how to dress like a girl. He studies me with narrowed eyes. You should get contact lenses and let your hair grow. Grow out that ugly dye job. Thank God Amy hasn't wrecked her hair. You know she only hung out with you because she felt sorry for you. You were just a burden to her. Shut up. Just shut up. I put my stuff down on the chair. It's true that Amy's better looking than me and more talented. Better at getting along with people, more lovable, or at least she's had people fall in love with her and I haven't. Maybe I never will. All at once I feel so sick and tired. Ted is growing before me. He looks like a linebacker. I take a deep breath and let it out. I reach for man size. I hear it in my head. It's not enough. I start to mutter the words. I'm not a good singer like Amy, but I let my voice rise. I feel ridiculous. At the same time, I feel like a badass. A ridiculous, badass rocker chick. I'll take it. Ted shakes his head. What the fuck are you doing, crazy bitch? You have a terrible singing voice. Do you know what your problem is? You don't know how to deal with men because you grew up without a father. I'm trying to sing over him, but this stops me cold. I felt sorry for you when Amy told me your dad's an alcoholic, but you're just too messed up. Jill Rosenberg would be dyke. What girl would want you? I bet your mom is a real winner, too. No wonder your dad drank. No wonder he left. Shut your fucking mouth. It hurts that Amy told Ted about my dad. I push that aside and start singing again. He keeps monologuing, but I sing over him and only catch a few phrases. Some garbage about how Amy is way too westernized and Ted's been teaching her how to treat a man. The door opens and we fall silent. It's Amy. Some kids behind her in the doorway gawk at us, but only she comes in. I guess we've been making quite a racket. She shuts the door and stares at us. What's going on? she demands. Your 
boyfriend has been telling me you only hung out with me because you felt sorry for me, I say. But I'm not listening to another fucking word from him. Before embarrassment can stop me, I start singing another song from Rid of Me, Fifty Foot Queenie. Ted is average size again. Did I make that happen? He turns to Amy. See how crazy Jill is? She won't stop singing. Fifty Foot Queenie! I yell, and Ted begins to shrink. Jill, have you gone crazy? Amy asks. Everyone can hear you out in the hall. Does she even notice that her boyfriend is at least a foot shorter than her? His skin gleams silver gray. Fifty Foot Queenie! Guitars in my head spur me on. My heart pounds. Amy lets out a disgusted sigh. Why are you singing that stupid song? You were always so obsessed with that weird PJ Harvey. I was so sick of it. Ted smiles. I falter, fall silent. Amy never complained about PJ Harvey before. Does she mean it? What about the stuff Ted said about her feeling sorry for me? Is it all true? Ted is growing larger again. Man size, I mumble. Fifty foot. But Amy's scorn seems to have neutralized the song's power. I scrabble around for something to sing, something to say, anything that might work. One of Amy's songs pops into my head. Truth be told, a lot of her songs aren't that good. But this one is super catchy. Amy wrote it after her breakup with her last boyfriend, Joey, who she hasn't mentioned in forever. I go straight for the chorus. I don't care if you hate me. I don't care if you won't date me. I won't stay home alone just crying. If you don't have good taste, my life won't go to waste. Me, myself, and I will be just fine. Amy blinks, startled. She watches me sing as if she finally recognizes me again. Another stupid song, Ted says with a laugh. You have the worst taste in music, Jill. Amy's mouth falls open. She stares at Ted, and I can see her pondering whether to tell him it's her song. Has she never played it for him? I always loved this song, I tell her, and start singing again. With an expression like she's about to jump off a cliff, Amy joins in, almost inaudibly at first, then louder. Ted shrinks again, faster this time. We sing in unison for a verse and a chorus. Then I just listen to Amy belt it out. It's her song, after all. Her voice is rich and vibrant. It's her true voice. Not the breathy small one she uses for Ted's benefit. Ted cringes at the sound. He keeps shrinking. Amy looks incredulous, her eyes riveted on him. But she doesn't stop singing. Amy, Ted gasps, but he already looks more like a doll than a person. He wavers, silver and gray and dully shining. His voice becomes fainter. He shrinks to the size and appearance of a silverfish. Amy stops singing. As she watches in horror, Ted crawls onto her sandaled foot. 
Ugh! She kicks out, sends Ted flying. He tried to bite me. Ted skitters into a crack in the wall. We stare at the spot. He doesn't come back out. Are you okay? I ask Amy. For a long moment, she's still and silent. Then she rounds on me and socks me on the arm. Why didn't you stay out of it, Jill? Now look what happened. I was defending myself. I rub my arm. He was hurting me too, you know. Doesn't that bother you? Don't you care at all? She starts to cry. Of course I care. I just loved him so much, even though... She stares bleakly at the place in the wall where he disappeared. The bell rings and I gather up my stuff from my chair. It feels like a long time has elapsed since I ate a turkey sandwich and listened to Meatsy Monster. We wander out of the classroom. It takes Amy a few days to apologize. I tell her it's okay, but I think it's going to take a while before I get over it completely. Ted's not gone. He reappeared, regular size, at school a few days later. I heard him tell one of his guy friends that he had the stomach flu. He doesn't come near Amy or me. Now that we know the truth about him, he already has a new girlfriend, Dana Tavris. She's really pretty and smart. Sherry says that Ted's always saying, Dana's not crazy like Amy. After I told Sherry what a creep Ted is, she tried to warn Dana. But Dana said, He's very misunderstood. Amy really hurt him. I hope Dana will be okay. I haven't told Sherry the whole story, but maybe I will if we get to know each other better. Sherry seems to like me, which is sort of a miracle, especially considering the way we met. With any luck, Amy and I won't have to see Ted anymore when we graduate, though I'm afraid we might run into others of his kind. Things Amy and I are going to do now that Ted is out of our lives. I'm going to learn to trust Amy again. I think Amy has to learn to trust herself again and get her dreams back, the dreams he tainted and sucked away. She's writing songs again. We're staying in town for college, but we're going to keep living at home for the time being. Hopefully, I'm going to get a girlfriend. Maybe Sherry, if I'm very, very lucky. Amy says Sherry would be the lucky one. Definitely, we're going to start a band. That was Gwyn Garfinkel's Man Size, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror, 
That's why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In-between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats, and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. Thank you, Josie. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Ratings and reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. It helps us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we tempt fate with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 